Chapter 33 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deluge, Volume 2, by Henrik Sienkiewicz. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin, 1835-1906, Chapter 33. After the affair at Rudnik, the king advanced farther toward the point of the wedge between the San and the Vistula, and did not cease as before to march with the rearguard. For he was not only a famous leader, but a knight of unrivalled daring. Charnyetsky, Vitovsky, and Lubomirsky followed and urged him on as a wild beast is urged to a trap. Detached parties made an uproar night and day around the Swedes. The retreating troops had less and less provisions. They were more and more wearied and drooping in courage, looking forward to certain destruction. At last, the Swedes enclosed themselves in the very corner where the two rivers meet, and rested. On one side the Vistula defended them, on the other the San. Both overflowed, as usual in springtime. The third side of the triangle the king fortified with strong entrenchments in which cannons were mounted. That was a position not to be taken, but it was possible to die there from hunger. But even in that regard the Swedes gained better courage for they hoped that the commandants would send them provisions by water from Krakow and other river fortresses. For instance, right there at hand was Saint-Domierge, in which Colonel Schinkler had collected considerable supplies. He sent these in at once, therefore the Swedes ate, drank, slept, and when they woke they sang Lutheran psalms, praising God that he had saved them from such dire distress but Charnyetsky was preparing new blows for them. Sandomierge in Swedish hands could always come to the aid of the main army. Charnyetsky planned, therefore, to take the town with the castle at a blow and cut off the Swedes. We will prepare a cruel spectacle for them, said he at a council of war. They will look on from the opposite bank when we strike the town, and they will not be able to give aid across the Vistula. And when we have Saint-Domierge, we will not let provisions come from Virets in Krakow. Lubomirsky, Vitovsky, and others tried to dissuade Charnyetsky from that undertaking. It would be well, said they, to take such a considerable town, and we might injure the Swedes greatly. But how are we to take it? We have no infantry. Siege guns we have not. It would be hard for cavalry to attack walls. But do our peasants, asked Charnyetsky, fight badly as infantry? If I had two thousand such as Mihalko, I would take not only Saint-Domierge, but Warsaw. And without listening to further counsel, he crossed the Vistula. Barely had his summons gone through the neighbourhood when a couple of thousand men hurried to him, one with a scythe, another with a musket, the third with a carabine, and they marched against Saint-Domierge. They fell upon the place rather suddenly, and in the streets a fierce conflict set in. 
The Swedes defended themselves furiously from the windows and the roofs, but they could not withstand the onrush. They were crushed like worms in the houses and pushed entirely out of the town. Schinkler took refuge with the remnant of his forces in the castle, but the Poles followed him with the same impetuosity. A storm against the gates and the walls began. Schinkler saw that he could not hold out even in the castle, so he collected what he could of men, articles and supplies of provisions, and, putting them on boats, crossed to the king, who looked from the other bank on the defeat of his men without being able to succour them. The castle fell into the hands of the Poles, but the cunning Swede, when departing, put under the walls in the cellars kegs of powder with lighted matches. When he appeared before the king, he told him of this at once, so as to rejoice his heart. The castle, said he, will fly into the air with all the men. Charnitsky may perish. If that is true, I want myself to see how the pious Poles will fly to heaven, said the king, and he remained on the spot with all the generals. In spite of the commands of Charnetsky, who foresaw deceit, the volunteers and the peasants ran around through the whole castle to seek hidden Swedes and treasure. The trumpets sounded an alarm for every man to take refuge in the town, but the searchers in the castle did not hear the trumpets or would not heed them. All at once the ground trembled under their feet. An awful thunder and a roar tore the air. A gigantic pillar of fire rose to the sky, hurling upward earth, walls, roofs, the whole castle, and more than five hundred bodies of those who had not been able to withdraw. Carl Gustav held his sides from delight, and his favour-seeking courtiers began at once to repeat his words, The Poles are going to heaven, to heaven! But that joy was premature, for none the less did Sandomierz remain in Polish hands and could no longer furnish food for the main army enclosed between the rivers. Charnetsky disposed his camp opposite the Swedes, on the other side of the Vistula, and guarded the passage. Sapieha, Grand Hetman of Lithuania and Voivoda of Vilno, came from the other side and took his position on the San. The Swedes were invested completely. They were caught, as it were, in a vice. The trap is closed, said the soldiers to one another in the Polish camps. For every man, even the least acquainted with military art, understood that inevitable destruction was hanging over the invaders unless reinforcements should come in time and rescue them from trouble. The Swedes too understood this. Every morning officers and soldiers, coming to the shore of the Vistula, looked with despair in their eyes and their hearts at the legions of Charnitsky's terrible cavalry standing black on the other side. Then they went to the San. There again the troops of Sapieha were watching day and night, ready to receive them with sabre and musket. To cross either the San or the Vistula while both armies stood near was not to be thought of. The Swedes might return to Yaroslav by the same road over which they came, but they knew that in that case not one of them would ever see Sweden. For the Swedes' grievous days and still more grievous nights now began, 
for these days and nights were uproarious and quarrelsome. Again, provisions were at an end. Meanwhile, Charnyetsky, leaving command of the army to Lubomirsky and taking the louder squadron as guard, crossed the Vistula above the mouth of the San to visit Sapieha and take counsel with him touching the future of the war. This time, the mediation of Zagwaba was not needed to make the two leaders agree, for both loved the country more than each one himself. Both were ready to sacrifice to it private interests, self-love and ambition. The Lithuanian hetman did not envy Charnetsky, nor did Charnetsky envy the hetman, but each did homage to the other, so the meeting between them was of such character that tears stood in the eyes of the oldest soldiers. The Commonwealth is growing, the dear country is rejoicing when such sons of heroes take one another by the shoulders, said Zagwaba to Pan Michal and Pan Yan. Charnyetsky is a terrible soldier and a true soul, but put Sapieha to a wound and it will heal. Would there were more such men, the skin would fly off the Swedes could they see this love of the greatest patriots. How did they conquer us if not through the rancour and envy of magnates? Have they overcome us with force? This is how I understand. The soul jumps in a man's body at sight of such a meeting. I will guarantee too that it will not be dry, for Sapieha loves a feast wonderfully, and with such a friend he will willingly let himself out. God is merciful, the evil will pass, said Panyan. Be careful that you do not blaspheme, said Zagwaba. Every evil must pass, for should it last forever, it would prove that the devil governs the world, and not the Lord Jesus, who has mercy inexhaustible. Their further conversation was interrupted by the sight of Babinich, whose lofty form they saw from a distance over the wave of other heads. Pan Mihao and Zagwoba began to beckon to him, but he was so much occupied in looking at Charnyetsky that he did not notice them at first. See, said Zagwoba, how thin the man has grown. It must be that he has not done much against Boguslav, said Vorodyovsky, otherwise he would be more joyful. It is sure that he has not, for Boguslav is before Marienburg with Steinbock, acting against the fortress. There is hope in God that he will do nothing. Even if he should take Marienburg, said Zagwaba, we will capture Karl Gustav right away. We shall see if they will not give the fortress for the king. See, Babinich is coming to us, interrupted Panyan. He had indeed seen them, and was pushing the crowd to both sides. He motioned with his cap, smiling at them from a distance. They greeted one another as good friends and acquaintances. What is to be heard? What have you done with the prince? asked Zagwaba. Evil, evil, but there is no time to tell of it. We shall sit down to table at once. You will remain here for the night. Come to me after the feast to pass the night among my Tartars. I have a comfortable cabin. We will talk at the cups till morning. The moment a man says a wise thing, it is not I who will oppose, said Zagwaba. But tell us why you have grown so thin. That hell-dweller overthrew me and my horse like an earthen pot, so that from that time I am spitting fresh blood and cannot recover. There is hope in the mercy of our Lord Christ that I shall let the blood out of him yet. 
But let us go now, for Sapieha and Charnyetsky are beginning to make declarations and to be ceremonious about precedence, a sign that the tables are ready. We wait for you here with great pleasure, for you have shed Swedish pig blood in plenty. Let others speak of what I have done, said Zagwaba. It does not become me. Meanwhile, whole throngs moved on, and all went to the square between the tents on which were placed tables. Sapieha, in honour of Charnyetsky, entertained like a king. The table at which Charnyetsky was seated was covert with Swedish flags. Mead and wine flowed from vats, so that toward the end both leaders became somewhat joyous. There was no lack of gladsomeness, of jests, of toasts, of noise, though the weather was marvellous and the sun warm beyond wonder. Finally, the cool of the evening separated the feasters. Then Kmichitz took his guests to the Tartars. They sat down in his tent on trunks packed closely with every kind of booty and began to speak of Kmichitz's expedition. Boguswav is now before Marienburg, said Pan Andrei, though some say that he is at the electors with whom he is to march to the relief of the king. So much the better, then we shall meet. You young fellows do not know how to manage him. Let us see what the old man will do. He has met with various persons, but not yet with Zagwaba. I say that we shall meet, though Prince Janusz in his will advised him to keep far from Zagwaba. The elector is a cunning man, said Pan Yan, and if he sees that it is going ill with Karl, he will drop all his promises and his oath. But I tell you that he will not, said Zagwaba. No one is so venomous against us as the Prussian. When your servant who had to work under your feet and brush your clothes becomes your master by change of fortune, he will be sterner to you the kinder you were to him. But why is that? asked Pan Mihao. His previous condition of service will remain in his mind, and he will avenge himself on you for it, though you have been to him kindness itself. What of that? asked Pan Mihao. It often happens that a dog bites his master in the hand. Better let Babinich tell about his expedition. We are listening, said Pan Yan. Kmichitz, after he had been silent a while, drew breath and began to tell of the last campaign of Sapieha against Boguslav, and the defeat of the latter at Yanov. Finally, how Prince Boguslav had broken the Tartars, overturned him with his horse, and escaped alive. But, interrupted Vordyovsky, you said that you would follow him with your Tartars, even to the Baltic. And you told me also in your time, replied Kmichitz, how Pan Yan here present, when Bohun carried off his beloved maiden, forgot her and revenge because the country was in need. A man becomes like those with whom he keeps company. I have joined you, gentlemen, and I wish to follow your example. May the mother of God reward you as she has Pan Yan, said Zagwaba. Still, I would rather your maiden were in the wilderness than in Boguswab's hands. That is nothing, exclaimed Pan Mihao. You will find her. I have to find not only her person, but her regard and love. One will come after the other, said Pan Mihao. 
even if you had to take her person by force, as at that time, you remember? I shall not do such a deed again. Here, Pan Andrei sighed deeply, and after a while he said, Not only have I not found her, but Boguslav has taken another from me. A pure Turk, as God is dear to me, cried Zagwaba. And Pan Yan inquired, What other? Oh, it is a long story, a long story, said Kmichitz. There was a maiden in Zamosh, wonderfully fair, who pleased Pan Zamoyski. He, fearing Princess Vishnyovetsky, his sister, did not dare to be overbold before her. He planned, therefore, to send the maiden away with me, as if to sapie her, to find an inheritance in Lithuania, but in reality to take her from me about two miles from Zamosh and put her in some wilderness where no one could stand in his way. But I sounded his intention. You want, thought I to myself, to make a pander of me. Wait. I flogged his men, and the lady in all maidenly honour I brought to Sapieha. Well, I say to you that the girl is as beautiful as a goldfinch, but honest. I am now another man, and my comrades, the Lord like their souls, are long ago dust in the earth. What sort of maiden was she? asked Zagwaba. From a respectable house, a lady-in-waiting on Princess Griselda. She was once engaged to a Lithuanian, Podbipienta, whom you, gentlemen, knew. Anusha Borzopohata! shouted Vordiovsky, springing from his place. Zagwaba jumped up too from a pile of felt. Pan Mihal, restrain yourself! But Vordiovsky sprang like a cat towards Kmichitz. Is it you, traitor, who let Boguslav carry her off? Be not unjust to me, said Kmichitz. I took her safely to the hetman, having as much care for her as for my own sister. Boguslav seized her not from me, but from another officer with whom Pan Sapieha sent her to his own family. His name was Gwovbich or something. I do not remember well. Where is he now? He is no longer living. He was slain. So at least Sapieha's officers said. I was attacking Boguslav separately with the Tartars. Therefore, I know nothing accurately save what I have told you. But noticing your changed face, I see that a similar thing has met us. The same man has wronged us, and since that is the case, let us join against him to avenge the wrong and take vengeance in company. He is a great lord and a great knight, and still I think it will be narrow for him and the whole commonwealth if he has two such enemies. Here is my hand, said Vordiovsky. Henceforth we are friends for life and death. Whoever meets him first will pay him for both. God grant me to meet him first. For that I will let his blood out is as sure as there is Amen in our father. Here, Pan Mihal began to move his moustaches terribly and to feel of his sabre. Zagwaba was frightened, for he knew that with Pan Mihal there was no joking. I should not care to be Prince Boguslav now, said he, even if someone should add Livonia to my title. It is enough to have such a wild cat as Kmichitz against one. But what will he do with Pan Mihal? And that is not all. 
I will conclude an alliance with you. My head, your sabres. I do not know, as there is a potentate in Christendom who could stand against such an alliance. Besides, the Lord God will sooner or later take away his luck, for it cannot be that for a traitor and a heretic there is no punishment. As it is, Kmichitz has given it to him terribly. I do not deny that more than one confusion has met him from me, said Pan Andrei, and giving orders to fill the goblets, he told how he had freed Soroka from captivity. But he did not tell how he had cast himself first at the feet of Rajivil, for at the very thought of that his blood boiled. Pan Mihal was rejoiced while hearing the narrative, and said at the end, May God aid you, Yendrek. With such a daring man one could go to hell. The only trouble is that we shall not always campaign together, for service is service. They may send me to one end of the Commonwealth and you to the other. It is not known which will meet him first. Kmichitz was silent a moment. In justice, I should reach him. If only I do not come out again with confusion, for I am ashamed to acknowledge that I cannot meet that hell-dweller hand to hand. Then I will teach you all my secrets, said Pan Mihal. Or I, said Zagwoba. Pardon me, your grace, I prefer to learn from Mihal, said Kmichitz. Though he is such a knight, still I and Pani Kowalski are not afraid of him. If only I had a good sleep, put in Roch. Be quiet, Roch, answered Zagwoba. May God not punish you through his hand for boasting. Oh, true, nothing will happen to me from him. Poor Kowalski was an unlucky prophet, but it was steaming terribly from his forelock, and he was ready to challenge the whole world to single combat. Others, too, drank heavily to one another and to the destruction of Boguslav and the Swedes. I have heard, said Kmichitz, that as soon as we rub out the Swedes here and take the king, we shall march straight to Warsaw. Then surely there will be an end of the war. After that will come the elector's turn. Oh, that's it, that's it, said Zagwoba. I heard Sapieha say that once, and he, as a great man, calculates better than others, he said, there will be a truce with the Swedes. With the Northerners there is one already, but with the Elector we should not make any conditions. Pan Czarnitsky, he says, will go with Lubomirsky to Brandenburg, and I with the Treasurer of Lithuania to Electoral Prussia. And if after that we do not join Prussia to the Commonwealth, it is because in our Chancellery we have no such head as Pan Zagwoba, who in autograph letters threatened the Elector. Did Sapieha say that? asked Zagwoba, flushing from pleasure. All heard him, and I was terribly glad, for that same rod will flog Boguslav, and if not earlier, we will surely reach him at that time. If we can finish with these Swedes first, said Zagwoba, devil take them, let them give up Livland and a million, I will let them off alive. The Cossack caught the Tartar, and the Tartar is holding him by the head, said Panyan, laughing. Karl is still in Poland. Krakow, Warsaw, Poznan, and all the most noted towns are in his hands, and Father wants him to ransom himself. Hey, we shall have to work much at him yet before we can think of the Elector. And there is Steinbock's army, and the garrisons, and Wirtz, put in Pan Stanislav. 
But why do we sit here with folded hands? asked Roch Kowalski on a sudden, with staring eyes. Cannot we beat the Swedes? You are foolish, Roch, said Zagwoba. Uncle always says one thing, but as I am alive, I saw a boat at the shore. We might go and carry off even the sentry. It is so dark that you might strike a man on the snout, and he wouldn't know who did it. Before they could see, we should return and exhibit the courage of cavaliers to both commanders. If you do not wish to go, I will go myself. The dead calf moved his tail. Wonder of wonders, said Zagwaba angrily. But Kmichitz's nostrils began to quiver at once. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea, said he. Good for camp followers, but not for him who regards dignity. Have respect for yourselves. You are colonels, but you wish to amuse yourselves with wandering thieves. True, it is not very becoming, added Vordiovsky. We would better go to sleep. All agreed with that idea. Therefore, they kneeled down to their prayers and repeated them aloud. After that, they stretched themselves on the felt cloth and were soon sleeping the sleep of the just. But an hour later, all sprang to their feet, for beyond the river the roaring of guns was heard, while shouts and tumult rose in Sapieha's whole camp. Jesus, Mary, exclaimed Zagoba, the Swedes are coming. What are you talking about? asked Vordiovsky, seizing his sabre. Roch, come here, cried Zagoba, for in cases of surprise he was glad to have his sister's son near him. But Roch was not in the tent. They ran out on the square. Crowds were already before the tents, and all were making their way toward the river, for on the other side was to be seen flashing of fire, and an increasing roar was heard. What has happened? What has happened? was asked of the numerous guards disposed along the bank. But the guards had seen nothing. One of the soldiers said that he had heard, as it were, the plash of a wave, but as fog was hanging over the water, he could see nothing. He did not wish, therefore, to raise the camp for a mere sound. When Zagwaba heard this, he caught himself by the head in desperation. Roch has gone to the Swedes. He said that he wished to carry off a sentry. For God's sake, that may be, cried Kmichitz. They will shoot the lad as God is in heaven, continued Zagwaba in despair. Worthy gentlemen, is there no help? Lord God, that boy was of the purest gold. There is not another such in the two armies. What shot that idea into his stupid head? Oh, mother of God, save him in trouble. Maybe he will return. The fog is dense. They will not see him. I will wait for him here even till morning. Mother of God, mother of God. Meanwhile, shots on the opposite bank lessened. Lights went out gradually and after an hour dull silence set in. Zagwaba walked along the bank of the river like a hen with ducklings and tore out the remnant of hair in his forelock. But he waited in vain, he despaired in vain. The morning whitened the river, the sun rose, but Roch came not. End of chapter 33 Recording by David Granville Young